Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Michael Redhill on his Scotiabank Giller Prize winning novel, Bellevue Square. Michael Redhill is the author of eight novels, including Consolation, longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, and Martin Sloan, a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, Canada's most prestigious book award. He's written a novel for young adults, four collections of poetry and two plays, including the internationally celebrated Goodness. He also writes a series of crime novels under the name Inga Ash Wolf, one of which, The Calling, will be made into a feature film starring Susan Sarandon. Bellevue Square, which we're going to be talking about today, won the 2017 Scotiabank Giller Prize. Michael, welcome to Little Atoms. Uh, thank you for having me, Neil. Michael, how would you describe Bellevue Square? You know, before the book came out, the easiest way to describe it was to say that it was a doppelganger novel told from the point of view of the doppelganger. That's still probably the best way to describe it because the book, um, you know, goes down a bunch of different rabbit holes. And the main character in the novel, who's a 42-year-old woman named uh, Jean Mason, uh, lives in Toronto, Canada. And she's a mother of two who's just leading a relatively normal life when she discovers or hears that she's got a doppelganger hanging around uh, downtown. And at first she's curious, and then she becomes quite obsessed with finding out what this person or thing wants from her. And you mentioned that Jean lives in Toronto. You live in Toronto yourself. I wanted to talk about, apart from obviously because you live there, why you write about Toronto. What is it about that city? It's interesting to me. A lot of uh, world cities sort of have an internal literature. You can think, uh, you know, London's literature goes back centuries. But, you know, L.A. is Raymond Chandler. And Toronto, or I don't think the cities in Canada really have um, characters of their own in fiction. So putting the city that I live in on the literary map is a part of my part of my goal as a writer. You know, Toronto being one of the larger cities in Canada suffers from different kinds of syndromes and including feeling like they're hated by the rest of the country and also feeling like New York's little brother. So I think that the uh this the city has a a bit of an identity issue um, and one of the, and it comes out in one way which is that its authors tend not to write about it so um, <clears throat> Bellevue Square being set in Toronto is uh, is just sort of one nod to the city's different frames of mind um, I wrote a novel called Consolation which is set in Toronto in the 1850s as well as in the present day so um, I feel uh, I feel quite rooted in the city although it's a very young city it feels like it has a lot of different sides to it 
Bellevue Square, the title of this book, was a place in Toronto. I understand that it's it doesn't exist as it once did now. Well, it's actually it, it was um it's been there since the the early 1800s. It was a military parade ground, and the um, the green space is still there. But what they what they seem to do every 20 or 30 years is dig it up and remake the park in the, in the image of the city's current image, you know. So um, in the 60s, there was a public artwork in there that looked like the three uh, funnels from the Titanic, you know, bent at a 45-degree angle in the 1960s. That was great public art. <laughs> that was gone by the 70s, and now they've just uh, they've replaced a fairly mingy, dirty, old park with a clean new one with softer surfaces so that people won't sue the city and that kind of thing. But um, it's it's still there, and it'll it'll just keep changing over time. So the park that appears in this book, what was that like? Strangely enough, I spent a lot of time in the park in 2010 to 2016. Like Jane. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I needed to do my research, and um, I got a real grip of the park. And the descriptions of the park in the novel are, are uh, very realistic. As soon as the book was finished, though, that's when they started to refurbish it again. So, yeah, so you say that, but we can't go in there. You can't go. Yeah, you can't go and you can't go and look. I mean, I didn't intend to be the last person to describe that public place, um, but it turns out that I am, and that happens to be one of the sub themes for me in a lot of my work is how the city I live in erases itself constantly. It's so young that it doesn't know what it is. It takes a long, a long time for a city to sort of. Uh, find its uh, footing. So Jean goes and spends a lot of time in the park looking for her doppelganger, who we'll talk about in a moment, and she encounters lots of other characters passing through the park or in its sort of surrounds. So is that, you know, basically what that was like when you were observing? Oh, totally. And it still will be. The, the park is a weird kind of crossroads. It, you know, brings people up from the sort of more business part of the city there's a University of Toronto right nearby, and then there's also a Centre for Mental Health and Addiction about 500 metres from the park. So it ends up being sort of a clearinghouse for all sorts of people. And despite it being refurbished, uh, this, they just opened it like three weeks ago. And, you know, the drunks and the philosophers and the magicians and the children and the parents, they all flooded back in. Let's talk about Jean Maystonville. You described her briefly when we first started, but tell us more about who she is. She's a woman who up until two years before the novel begins was living in a different, in a small town north of Toronto. She and her husband and their two kids come to the city to start a new life, and she opens up a bookstore, uh, which has been a dream of hers for a long time. And um, there's hints uh, earlier in the book, or, or throughout the book, that Jean has had disturbances in the past, emotional, mental disturbances due uh, to grief that she's suffered from losing a child. She's a very rational person. One of the reasons the book is written in first person is that I wanted the reader to click with her and go, oh, this is a person like me, and just sort of accept her as a, uh, an authentic presence. So she's somebody who, like us, like you or me, I presume, uh, if neither of us is insane, uh, who expects the world to, to behave by certain rules. And when it doesn't, our tendency, I think, is to uh, is sort of reject it out of hand or make up some kind of excuse for it until we're confronted face-on with something that doesn't make sense to us. And that's, that's part of Jean's journey in the novel. And so she comes, first of all, to be told about and then to witness herself mm -hmm. another woman who is basically her double. A woman she comes to learn is called Ingrid Fox. And Ingrid has a 
a different life, similar but different to Jean. Tell us mm-hmm. something about who Ingrid is. Um, as much as you can. As much as I can, <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Ingrid is, uh, writes novels. She writes uh, detective fiction under a pseudonym, um, and her pseudonym is uh, Ingrid Fox. She's, uh, she seems to have a good life. She lives um, very close to the market, and um, when Jean takes the risk of breaking into her house at one point in the novel, um, she discovers that uh, Ingrid has all the books that Jean is currently selling in her store, and she also discovers a pad of paper with handwriting on it that's identical to hers. So when you ask who is Ingrid, or from Jean's point of view, she's Jean. And uh, I mean, at that point in the book, things get, things get pretty weird. The idea of the, the doppelganger, let's talk about... Well, in the book, certain of the doppelganger legends are mentioned. The, the idea of the Yorona, which you can tell us what that is in a moment as well. And then you talk also about occurrences of doppelgangers in literature, mm-hmm. um, which we'll come on to in a minute. But tell us some of the, um, the other examples of the idea of the doppelganger. Well, it, it occurs in literature second. At first, it's Smith. You know, I mean, the Egyptians had the Ra, and uh, the Irish had uh, a, a figure called the Fetch. And these were all uh, supposed to be creatures that foretold your death. If you saw your doppelganger, it meant that your death was close behind. And through history, we have examples of people who claim to have seen their doppelgangers, people who we wouldn't normally think uh, were um, subject to flights of fancy, like Abraham Lincoln, who apparently saw his face in a mirror, and it's hard to describe. He saw two reflections in the mirror. One was the way he looked properly, and one was a sallow, drawn face. And this was right before he was assassinated. So, um, not that I put too much store into that, but obviously the uh, the the myth is something that has teeth. It's something that uh, challenges or even attacks our sense of specialness, our sense of self. And then when you get into the literary treatment of it, um, you have it all the way from Edgar Allan Poe up to Jose Saramago's novel The Double. And they all seem to treat it just a little bit differently. Sometimes it's an expression of psychological pain, or sometimes it's the supernatural. Uh, Guy de Maupassant has a a short story called The Horla, in which a man burns down his house to destroy his doppelganger, but in the course of it he destroys everything, his family and everything that he owns. So it's certainly a sinister idea. I mean, every time I've come across it in books or in film, it's given me quite a shiver. Probably Dead Ringers is the David Cronenberg movie. That's probably the one that really gives me the most horripilation. It's a very nasty, dark piece of work, but I do like it. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Michael Redhill. We're talking about his latest novel, Bellevue Square. And Michael, we just finished before the break talking about literary doppelgangers. And again, this is one of those books where, you know, we don't want to give too much away about what happens. It's a mystery upon a mystery upon a mystery. But let's talk about some psychological instances of the idea of a doppelganger. So you talk about a condition in the book called autoscopy, is it? Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Autoscopy? Autoscopy. Yeah, autoscopy. something like that. So yeah. what is that? It's a real diagnosis. Um, it's, uh, regardless of its source, because it might be a brain injury or, or uh, seizures, but its effect is that the patient sees him or herself in mere form, but out in the world, sort of repeating their actions. It's not how I how I describe it in the book because um, I mean somebody in the novel describes it as asymmetrical uh, autoscopy, like the doppelganger op- appears to be doing its own thing. Um, as if that's a rarer form of, the, of that condition. Yeah, I'm not even sure it exists, but uh, I don't think too many people will take me to task for it. Oliver Sacks writes about autoscopy in one of his books. I think it's called Hallucinations. And uh, it's sort of fascinating on the level that we're all used to looking out at the world through our eyes and seeing things that are not us, unless you happen to be looking into a mirror. So to have a condition that would cause you to manifest a version of yourself outside of yourself in a way that's believable to you, it's a obviously a hallucination, but it seems real. It suggests or speaks to a power of the mind that um, luckily most of us don't come in contact with and don't don't have to tap. And so widening that out, I just want to talk about writing about mental illness in general, I guess, because that's that's what, you know, this book is both a story of, you know, the supernatural, perhaps, and mental illness, yeah. perhaps, or almost certainly. Yeah. And so... It almost seems like this type of novel, which is like, you know, multi-layered, there's lots of different strands, Jean's perception of herself changes so often, is undermined at every turn by almost every person she talks to. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me something about that, about trying to convey those ideas of, of mental illness on the page. Well, the doppelganger seems like a very extreme experience, and yet we talk about, uh, we know that people with schizophrenia hear voices, People who experience bipolarity are two people in one. This uh, this division of self is something that actually I think occurs in in real life and in, in people with mental suffering. I wanted to bring that aspect to the fore in the novel because on the one hand I wanted to normalize uh, the experience of mental illness because a lot of the people in the book who who occupy that park are are I tried to make them as three dimensional as I could. 
in part to sort of test the reader's tolerance, but also to give Jean a uh, something to measure herself against. Um, as she says later in the book, uh, you know, being crazy doesn't seem all that out of the ordinary for her at some point. It just seems to be part of the general swim of, or the possibility of, of where the human mind can go. Yeah, I think that uh, mental illness is often used in books and movies as a sort of plot device. And uh, there was a real opportunity with this book to make these altered states seem more normal. I know a lot of people who read the book say they felt like they're going crazy while they're reading it. That wasn't necessarily my goal, but, you know, I don't abjure it either. <laughs> and, well, another layer, which, again, we don't want to talk about it really in the context of the, what happens in the book, but, you know, quite literally, all of the people that we're talking about here are literary works. They're characters in a novel. Mm-hmm. You write novels under a pseudonym as well, as I mentioned in the introduction. And so at one point in the book, actually your own pseudonymous persona comes into this book as a character. I want to talk about why you wanted to do that, first of all. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it at first. Um, There was an organic uh, sort of process that you go through when you're writing a book. I don't necessarily know where I'm headed when I'm working on a draft. I like to be surprised. And sometimes the surprises are wrong, the wrong kinds of surprises, and I'll just sort of back up and pick up where I left off somewhere. But with this book, the sort of inevitability began to form for me, like a shape rising to the surface. And I recognized that it was another another layer to the theme of the book, um, and one that I think helped the reader maybe leap out of the book into the real world at the end. I mean, one of the one of the questions at the center of the book is, why do we believe that we're real? You know, and it seems like a stupid question, but it's a circular question. You know, it's, it's that almost Descartes, it's an unprovable assertion, you know. I mean, he, he thinks he proves it with, with the phrase that we all repeat, but, um, but there's some question like, who are we when we're dreaming? Who are we when we look at ourselves in photographs? I think that there's that we that we have a we have a habit as as humans to continually recreate the fabric of our selfhoods, but there's something very fragmented about it that um, I think is invisible to us. But underneath the trappings of uh, of our um, social lives and the way that we reinforce our personalities with each other, there's something very inchoate. I think. I think all of those ideas uh, feel very familiar because, you know, I think when we're growing up, we have these ideas of like, you know, am I a character in, you know, am I the main character in a story? Or, you know, is the world still there when I close my eyes and go to Mm -hmm. sleep and things like that? And then, of course, it turns out that these are all like, you know, perfectly legitimate theories, uh, theories of consciousness, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the problems I bring up in the book aren't new. Uh, Humans have kicked this around for a long time. What's interesting to me about considering that, uh, that the self doesn't really have the sovereignty that we think it does is what kinds of possibilities it opens up, not just in terms of the imagination, but but also existential possibilities. You know, we see ourselves these days all over the virtual world. It's not just you and me sitting at a table. You've got your Facebook page. I've got my Twitter handle. You know, I exist in a half a dozen places virtually. And in all of those places, I kind of control my persona. That to me is interesting because I think it's a, touching upon an instinct that we have as a, as a species, perhaps, which is to, I'm not sure how to put it, but somehow colonize, you know, colonize not just the, not just the world in a historical sense, but also colonize each other's minds by connecting them all through the internet. And I, I want to bring us 
back to the real world and the pseudonym again. So your pseudonym for the, the crime novels that you write, Inga Ash Wolf, appears in this book. She's a woman as a character in the mm-hmm. book. Stupidly, I forgot to check whether or not Inga Ash Wolf yes. in the real world is. She's so, a f- female uh, author, yes. Okay, so let's talk about that. About there's, I think I recall in the in the book there's like a throwaway line, a throwaway joke about um, representation at one point. Um, let's just talk about that writing. So you you chose to write pseudonymously yeah. with a woman. I want to call her a character. I guess it is a character. I think it's good that you... Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way to look at it. I think when you sit down as yourself and write, you're still... You're performing. Sure. On some level. Um, you're selecting and you're and you're sculpting. So to, to put on an imaginary mask of a totally different author, it's... When I'm writing under my own name, it's still an imaginary thing. I chose to write uh, under a pseudonym for practical reasons at first because I just I wanted the books to uh, succeed or fail on their own merit or lack thereof. It tends to happen that when you're known for writing one kind of fiction, when you write another kind of fiction, the conversation's all about how they're the same or different, you know, compare and contrast, and it's not really fair to the books. So I, I wanted to send those um, those mystery novels out into the world under under a pseudonym. What was fun for me was imagining my own sort of talent kit being adapted for somebody who is a little bit different than me. You know, Inger Ashwolf is an older writer. I think of her as having more experience in small towns. I live in a big city, but Inger Ashwolf is somebody who has a handle on small town life. She has a different reading list than I do, you know. I found it was very interesting. It made me feel like maybe if I took it too far that I, you know, could make myself crazy. But um, the books were easier to write once I had let go of of my persona as a writer and just let her, that sounds pretty creepy, but just <laughs> let that voice, let that mask speak. And those books sound a little like me, but not a lot. It would perhaps sound creepy if we weren't talking about this particular book, which is concerned with exactly those those sort of ideas. And and I want to talk about this book, as I said, it's it's there's multi layers to what's going on. A lot for Jean to try and keep a handle on as to you know what's going on yeah. around her. And I wanted to talk about writing it. I guess you know how do you, when you set out to write this book. How do you keep a handle on, you know, the the various, not, not just plot strands, plot strands isn't really the right word, but, the, you know, where we are right now, what layer of, yeah. the, of the... It's almost like the book is like, you know, I think it would be crass to describe it like as like Inception, because it's much better than that, <laughs> but in that sort of way, do you know what I mean? At what layer yeah. of the of the story yeah. are we at in your ins- head? I liked Inception, so that's okay with me. <laughs> um, it took about six years to write, and... One thing I had to do as I got closer to publication and had a relationship through the book with my editor was to sort of for my own uh, for my own through line make sure that I decided for myself what the internal consistency was. I didn't want to spell it out entirely because I thought maybe some readers would appreciate that. I think maybe a third of my readers would have appreciated it, but I wanted to leave things kind of live as as much as I could at the end of the book. So to keep the threads together was a matter of sometimes testing what I was doing up against this kind of boilerplate idea I had of, you know, where the where the consciousness of the novel is emerging from and the energy of the novel is dependent on that consciousness. I, I sometimes describe the book as a disease process. You know, you have something that begins in a kind of a... It's a very solid, easy-to-identify piece of writing at the beginning of the book. 
but then it slides and it uh, its surface begins to shudder and then things go quite off the rails, which I think to me is also analogous to what happens when you lose your mental health. You know, it's it, you slip at first and then you fall and then you're somewhere else. We mentioned earlier Guida Maupassant's The Hauler, the story, which certainly see its fingerprints in this book, in this book's themes, but I wanted to talk about more generally what other writers are an influence on you. Um, I've gone through different phases. I think all writers get attached to certain voices and then discard them, or maybe they even process them through their own writing. When I was a younger person, you know, Michael Andachi was somebody that uh, I read very closely. I love the work of an American named Laurie Moore. I, I love her humor and her darkness. Uh, Richard Ford, Jim Harrison. I think what a lot of these writers have in common and what I'm drawn to is a kind of singularity of voice. Like you, like when you're reading a book by, say, Alice Munro, you know that no matter how well-trained her twin sister might have been, had she had a twin sister, that she would never have been able to produce Alice Munro's fiction. I think sometimes when we read what we might, for lack of a better word, call bad books, are books written by people who have not yet processed all the things that um, are standing in the way of them just simply and clearly expressing something that's coming from the center of their of their being. And I think that's true whether you're writing a romance novel or you're writing poetry. I mean, the, something in you has to break through that communicates to the reader that um, they're having a singular experience reading your book. So those writers that I was attracted to were people with such strong voices that I eventually stopped trying to be like them and stopped trying to copy their way of writing and tried to follow instead their example. Just one more thing for me then, then I'll get you to, to read a bit of Bellevue Square, if you would. Yeah. Um, this book is the first in a projected trilogy of modern ghost mm -hmm. books. Um, tell us what more we can expect. Well, f first off, Guy de Maupassant's um, short story, The Horla, his alternate title was Modern Ghosts. So I've borrowed that for this grouping of, th of three books. Uh, the second book um, is called Mason of Tunica, and it's about a man who's been who's hunting for a deadbeat dad. This person also had uh, some, he thinks, some influence over his missing wife, a woman who disappeared many years ago, and who is now legally dead, but nobody's ever been found. So while he's on the trail of this man in northern Mississippi, she's also with him as a ghost, in the car with him, hanging out in the hotel, interfering with his investigations, sometimes helping. And so it's a sort of two-track thing in this next book where, on a real level, the main character is, is finally tracking down somebody who he thinks might unlock some meaning for him from his own past life. And at the same time, this ghost is sort of saying to him, what happened to me happened between us, not between me and some other person or some other cause. And it's, it's a thing that he, he doesn't want to acknowledge or face. And over the course of the novel, you know, she finally brings him to ground. And the third volume is a collection of three novellas, which are all right now in various states of completion, but they pick up on subtext, no, I shouldn't say subplots, in the first and second books and bring them all the way through. So there's a novella set in the 18, sorry, the 1790s, a snake oil salesman type trundling about uh, Lancashire, selling nostrums and doing basic science experiments for people and prognosticating and stuff. And, and uh, he accidentally produces a voice and a tin horn and can't explain how he did it and gets into trouble with the religious authorities. So that's that's the first of the three. But they, they all, in the end, they kind of want all 
there's three books, but there's kind of five stories because of the three novellas. I want them all to keep circling the same fire, you know, and looking at the beauty and the mystery of of having a self. You know, this is the thing that we all think we own. The only thing we really have is who we are. And to test that or to torment the reader uh, over questions uh, about it is one of the goals, I think, of the, of the triptych. So I'm going to read from the very beginning of Bellevue Square. And uh, as I said, this is a first-person novel told in the voice of a 42-year-old woman, so I can't do it justice on that level, but, um, but this is Jean Mason. My doppelganger problems began one afternoon in early April. I was alone in the store, shelving books and humming along to Radio 2. Mr. Ronan, one of my regulars, came in. I watched him from my perspective in fiction as he chose an aisle and went down it. I have a bookshop called Bookshop. I do subtlety in other areas of my life. I've been here for two years now, but it's sped by. I have about 20 regulars, and I'm on a first-name basis with them, but Mr. Ronan insists on calling me Mrs. Mason. His credit card discloses only his first initial, G. I have a running joke. Every time I see the initial, I take a stab at what it stands for. I run his card and take one guess. We both think it's funny, but he's also shy, and I think it embarrasses him, which is one of the reasons I do it. I'm trying to bring him out of himself. He's promised to tell me if I get it right one day. So far, he hasn't been Gordon or any of its short-form subriquets or cognomens. Not Gary, Gabriel, Glenn, or Jean, and neither Gerald nor Graham, my first two guesses, based on my feeling that he looked pretty Geraldish at times, but also very Grahamish too. He's a late middle-aged ex-academic or ex-accountant or someone who spent his life at a desk who once might have been a real fireplug like Mickey Rooney, but who, at 60-plus years, looks like a hound in a sweater. There is no woman in his life to judge by the fine blonde and red hairs that creep up the sides of his ears. I know he likes first editions and broadsides, as well as books about architecture and miniatures. I keep my eye out for him. And he's a gazpacho enthusiast. You get all kinds. I always discover something new when Mr. Ronan comes in. For instance, you can make soup from watermelons. I did not know that. He came around a corner and stopped when he saw me. He was out of breath. There you are, he said. When did you get here? To the fiction section. You're dressed differently now, he said, and your hair was shorter. My hair? What are you talking about? You were in the market. Fifteen minutes ago, I saw you there. No, I said, that wasn't me. I wasn't in any market. Huh, he said. He had a disagreeable expression on his face, a look halfway between fear and anger. He smiled with his teeth. You were wearing gray slacks and a black top with little gold lines on it. I said hello. You said hello. Your hair was up to here. He chopped at the base of his skull. So you have a twin, then. I have a sister, but she's older than me, and we look nothing alike. I don't mention that Paula is certain that G. Ronan's name is Gavin. And I've been here all morning. Mm-mm, he said. No, I'm sure... He left the aisle. My back tingled, and I had the instinct to move to a more open area of the store where I could watch him. I went behind my cash desk and started to pencil prices into a stack of green-covered penguin crime. I flipped up their covers and wrote five ninety-nine in each one, keeping my eye on my strangely nervous customer. Finally, he came out of the racks with the conquest of Gaul and put it down on my desk. Oh, Mr. Ronan, I want to tell you I found a pretty first edition of Miniature Rooms by Mrs. Thorne. Original blue boards, flat, clean inside. Do you want to see it? Yes, he said, like it hurt to speak. I brought it out from the rare and first edition's case. It's just uncanny. It really is, he said. This woman. Yes, she said hello back like she knew me. I swear to God she called me by name. 
But I don't know your name, right, Mr. G. Ronan? I think you dreamt this. But it just happened, he said, like that explained something to him. And you knew my name. Mr. Ronan and I said, but suddenly he lunged at me with a cry and grabbed me by the shoulders. Despite his size, I couldn't hold him off, and he backed me up hard against the first edition's case. I heard the books behind me thud and tumble. Take it off, he shouted in my face. With one hand, he tried to yank the hair from my head. Take off the wig. Get back, I shrieked. I pushed against his forehead with my palm. Get off me. Damn you, Mrs. Mason. When a fistful of my hair would not tear off, he leapt up and stumbled backwards, his eyes locked on mine but washed of rage. The blood had drained from his face. Christ, that's real. Yes, it's real. My real hair attached to my own personal head. What's wrong with you? He groveled to the other side of the desk. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I must be having another attack. Another attack? Of what? Do you want me to call an ambulance? I'll be okay. I'm really sorry. I don't know what came over me, Jean. Forgive me. That was the first time he had ever used my name. You scared me, and you hurt me, you know. Are you sure I can't call a friend or someone? No, he said. I'll go home and lie down. I'm, I'm just so sorry. He took his wallet out and put his trembling credit card down on the cash desk. I tapped it for him. We stood together in a dreadful silence until I said, Gilbert? No, he replied. So I've been talking to Michael Redhill. We've been talking about his new novel, Bellevue Square, which is out in the UK from No Exit Press. Michael, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.